Unfortunately for fans of Lemony Snicket, it's been a long, long time since we dipped a toe into the dark pool that is the A Series of Unfortunate Events series. That changes today. Episode 254 is all about the fifth book in the series, The Austere Academy, which was published in 2000. In the Austere Academy, the orphaned Baudelaire children find themselves dropped off at an eerie boarding school with absurd rules, horrible living conditions, a nasty mean girl named Carmelita Spatz, and a hilariously self-involved vice principal. The good news? They make friends with Duncan and Isadora Quagmire. The bad news, shortly after befriending the Quagmires, they discover that the villainous Count Olaf has reemerged, this time disguised as the school's gym teacher, but set, as always, on snatching the Baudelaire's and the fortune left to them by their parents. On today's episode, we chat about why Lemony Snicket's work was so appealing to kids in the aughts, even if it was dark. We talk about the Austere Academy more specifically and how it differs from other installments in the series. We discuss the importance of friendship, which Baudelaire we most relate to, the many failures of the adult characters in the book, moral ambiguity, and why, in some ways, we appreciate books like this even more as grown-ups than we did as kids. Let's talk about today's guest. A Californian native, Noelle Crooks's love of books started at a young age when running to the local library with her late father. Before publishing her debut novel, Under the Influence, Noelle held roles at Sephora and Dolce Vita. I first learned about Noelle when she spoke out about her experience at the Hollis Company after news broke of the toxic, problematic culture there. An education activist, Noelle is passionate about supporting youth literacy within marginalized schools. Noelle resides in New York City with her sidekick pup, Cooper. Follow Noelle on Instagram and Twitter at Noelle Crooks. Come visit me on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod where I keep you up to date on everything that's happening with the podcast, what I'm reading in my personal life, and the hilarious things that my dog is doing. You can also keep up with the show on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. Social media is a fantastic way to spread the word about the show if you're enjoying it. Please take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it and post it to your Instagram story, tagging me at SSRPod so I can see it and share along with five-star ratings and reviews on your listening platform of choice. These kinds of shout-outs really do help SSR grow. Your favorite podcasters are always asking you to do these things because they go such a long way, especially for independent shows like mine. So thank you in advance for doing so. There is also Patreon, a platform that connects independent creators like me with fans of the content they create. For as little as $1 per month, and that works out to literally 25 cents per episode, You can access fun, exclusive rewards and take an active role in keeping SSR going and growing. The Patreon community is full of truly wonderful, thoughtful, compassionate, and smart people. And I know you will love connecting with all of them when you join us. Learn more and get involved at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If you are currently supporting the show as a patron, I hope you know how much I appreciate you. Episode 254 is brought to you by Anna Todd's The Falling and The Burning. Set against the backdrop of a military base, best-selling author Anna Todd has written an all-new heart-stopping romance trilogy that is sure to keep you up way after your bedtime. The first two books in the Brightest Stars trilogy are now available wherever books are sold, just in time to help you wrap up summer reading. Find your next great audiobook at Libro FM. 
That's libro.fm and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is the only place where I buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. Let's be honest, we all rely on Amazon for lots of things, but Libro.fm offers us a chance to direct our dollars elsewhere. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys, like Audible. Give it a try and let me know what you listen to and love. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Noelle, welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you and thrilled that you suggested that we cover another book in the series of unfortunate events series. It always feels so weird and redundant to say that, but that's what I have to say. This is the first time we've circled back to this series since I believe 2020 or 2021. And listeners, I'll be sure that I link the other episode in the show notes. This time we are talking about book five in the series, The Austere Academy. And Noelle, I kind of just want to hear from you why you wanted to revisit Lemony Snicket's world in particular, and if there was a specific reason that The Austere Academy was the installment that spoke to you. Yeah, so I love Lemony Snicket. I'll just start there. I have loved him when I was younger, was a huge fan of the books. And I decided to pick this book because one, I thought it was fun, but I also felt like the storyline and the themes were so relevant. Having the orphans go into this environment that they're sort of not used to and having to navigate what that looks like, I thought that sounds like something I want to read right now. Because I feel like we're all still doing that even as adults, just navigating new environments and not really sure what we're doing. Exactly, exactly. Do you remember what it was about Lemony Snicket that you loved so much as a kid and maybe what part of that you've carried with you up until now? Yes, I really love his style of writing. I think the just the dark, the clever, some of the humor. I know for a fact when I was younger, probably a lot of that humor went over my head, but I just remember them being so entertaining. And I feel like for me, one of the reasons I loved his books in particular were because it felt so real to me. I felt like so many books, especially when you're a child, always have that sort of happy ending and are always very bright and cheerful. And not that I was necessarily like a sad kid in particular, but I liked the fact that these children were going through things that felt real and they were going through hardships. And so I felt like I felt really seen as a child reading them. And so I was really excited to pick it back up again. I also enjoyed Lemony Snicket when I was a kid. I remember eating up a lot of the books in this series. I don't think I read the whole thing, but I didn't know very much about Lemony Snicket when I was a young reader myself, and I had done some research about him for that first episode we did a few years ago. Do you know anything about him, Noelle? 
I've done a little bit of research. I know Lemony Snicket is not his real name. Right. And I know a few other things. I want to say he, I know he's really big into diversity in his books and like casting, but I feel like you have a fun fact that you want to share. Oh, I have so many and I'm happy to share my little <laughs> Lemony Snicket refresher for you and for anybody listening who either hasn't listened to the other episode or just doesn't know anything about this guy. So I, of course, as a naive child was like, yes, this this author's name is probably actually Lemony Snicket. Like, how weird. How cool. And of course, a few years ago, I discovered that no, this is an author who's actually American. His name is Daniel Handler. And he started writing for kids after he struggled to sell his first adult book. He got a bunch of passes from a few publishers and somebody at HarperCollins came back to him and was like, we're not into this, but would you write a kid's book? And Daniel Handler like actually wasn't that into the idea of writing for kids. He had, I think he probably would agree that like maybe he had a little bit of snobbery around it. Like he felt like a lot of kids books pandered to their readers and just weren't very respectful to them. But he decided to give it a try and they ended up really liking it. And their pitch to him was basically to write the book that he would have wanted to read when he was 10. And that's how we ended up with a series of unfortunate events. I think what probably happened is that he wrote like one or two long novels and they ended up cutting it up into short ones because the first book debuted in 1999. And then this book, which is book five, came out in 2000. So they put them out really quickly. I want to share a couple of the things that Lemony Snicket had said over the years about his work because I do think it's interesting the way he perceives what he does um, and what he brought that was like unique to the market. So he, again, talks about how he felt like kind of what you were saying, Noelle, like kids are too often expected to just buy into the fact that there's always going to be a happy ending and they can trust everybody and they don't have anything to worry about. Like your worries aren't actually that serious. And we've all been kids. We know that when you're a kid, like everything actually feels pretty serious. And he also chose to set it in an alternate timeless world, which he thought would sort of lend it like a special quality. He really wanted it to have this dark humor, feel really sarcastic. And of course, he does this thing where he like warns kids not to read the books because they're just like too dark and scary, which I think is so smart because there's nothing like telling a kid not to do something to encourage them to do something. (laughs) There was a review in The Guardian in 2019 that sort of celebrates the 20th anniversary of the books. And I just also wanted to share a few quick quotes from that before we jump into the Austere Academy. Perhaps a series of unfortunate events is so special simply because Handler saw children as people. Wow. Not as children, which I think is cool. I love that. Don't you think that's awesome? Yeah, no, I think that's really awesome. And I think as a child, I remember feeling that way, like Mm -hmm. feeling seen. Yeah. And taken seriously. Right. Here's another one. Thinking all children's books were, quote, crap, he set out to write something he would want to read. He took his readers seriously. Where Harry Potter was aggressively simplistic, Handler used devices such as alliteration and repetition to the point of absurdity while referencing anything from Shakespeare to Melville. Books are an essential part of the plot. And he goes on to talk about how the Baudelaire's are shown to be innovative and independent, as many child heroes often are, but Handler reminded us that they shouldn't have to be so resourceful. A series of unfortunate events isn't just about the bravery of children, but the failures of adults. It's about the gray area between bona fide villains and useless good guys who don't speak out about the abuses they witness. We are taught, too, that even good adults, 
will let their own self-interest get in the way and fail the children in their care, which is like pretty dark. And it does like suck that kids have to learn that lesson. But yeah, I think it is interesting to consider the fact that Daniel Handler, aka Lemmy Snicket, was like, no, like, let's just get this out of the way. Totally, totally. And I do feel like in the books, you can feel all of his motivations. Like you reading it out loud, it just makes so much sense when you are actually reading the stories. Yeah, it all clicks. And I remember when I came back to The Bad Beginning, which is the first book in the series a few years ago, it was the first time I'd revisited any of these books since I was a kid. And then I did some of this research myself for the first time. And I was like, wait, it all does start to make sense. Like why it was different, why it felt fresh, why it felt new. And I think like I felt it even more with this book, The Austere Academy. Big picture. I think one of the coolest things about this book is that the kids really are the heroes. And it's not just because the author is trying to like boost up their reader's self-esteem, but it's because the adults are such messes. Like the kids, in contrast to the grown-ups, are so much better and more capable and kinder. And I think that separates this series from a lot of other books because I don't know I feel like I grew up reading a lot of books and watching a lot of things where kids were the heroes but it wasn't usually because the adults were like this incompetent absolutely yeah no the adults in these books are really funny when you are an adult reading it I don't think I necessarily caught on how funny it was when I was younger I was just sort of like oh no they're uncle's doing this thing or oh no the teacher's doing whatever but as an adult when you're reading about it I'm sort of like oh I think I know somebody who's like this or I know an adult that might be behaving similar to this so yeah I think it is it's one of those books I feel like that is timeless like reading it as an adult I think I enjoyed it just as much if not even more than when I read it as a child yeah and I don't know that I read this one but I will say that when I posted that I was reading The Austere Academy, I got a lot of DMs from people who were like, this was my favorite one from the series. So I'm glad you picked this one. Yeah, yeah. Have you watched the Netflix series by chance? We started it and I I feel like it was early pandemic, maybe like very early lockdown. And it was one of like many things that we started binging and then we kind of like fell off of it. I don't think we ever finished it. Have you seen the whole thing? I've seen a lot of them. I've seen the Austere Academy one, and it is, it's really funny, like who they've casted for Carmelita Spatz and how they've, like even the costumes and everything and the cinematography, it's, it's really good. Next time you're looking for a little Netflix binge, I would, I would recommend. Okay, I'll have to watch it. I feel like when we were watching, obviously like times are very dark in the world. And so we were like, maybe we should watch something lighter. Also, my husband had never read the books. And so he didn't get why it was so funny. But the episodes that we watched, I remember thinking were very well done. Yeah, yeah. And I completely understand. I think during that time, we all needed something a little bit more cheerful than uh, Lemony Snicket. (laughs) Yes, but I do think I could revisit. And now that I have this particular book fresh in my mind, I would like to see what they did with it. So let's start at the beginning of the Austere Academy. We are reintroduced to the three Baudelaire children. There's Violet, Klaus, and Sunny. And we are reminded of their very sad story, which is that their parents were killed and they were left in the care originally of this like total creep named Count Olaf who wanted to steal their money. 
And thankfully they got out, but he has been trying to chase them down ever since. And they don't really have any protection. The only somewhat consistent presence they have in their life is this banker named Mr. Poe, who is perhaps the most incompetent of any of the adults in this book, which is saying something. And as we begin the Austere Academy, we find out that they are going off to boarding school. And like, if you give me boarding school, I'm in. Like, we just love a boarding school book. So I was hooked immediately. Same. I'm a big fan of boarding schools, private schools, like just that whole environment, I feel like breeds so many interesting stories. I really love that the setting has so many just sort of awful like teachers, the vice principal, like all of the cast, I feel like in this story has really, really entertaining value to him. Yes, totally. And Carmelita Spatz is the first person they meet and you referenced her as you were describing the show. But she's just basically the worst. Like that's the only way that I can describe her. (laughs) She's like the worst kid at any school that anybody has ever gone to. Yes, I've never been bullied, but I do know even as an adult, I would not want to be bullied by Carmelita Spatz. When she had the whole entire cafeteria chanting it just felt like I mean I wanted to crumble even just reading it (laughs) Carmelita Spatz would bully an adult too I believe that 100% yes she's 100% mean girl energy in in the worst way yes she's in it fully for herself and she knows how to find the adults that are on her side which she does quite a bit in this book so we meet Carmelita Spatz she is immediately making fun of the bottle airs she calls them cake sniffers which is like the repeated insults throughout the book. And then they go in to meet Mr. Nero, who was the vice principal. And I I thought he was hilarious. Like there were so many moments in the margins of this book where I, when I was reviewing what I had jotted down today, like there are so many LOLs in the margins and they are almost all next to moments with vice principal Nero. What did you think of him as a character? He is without a doubt my favorite character in this book. He is so funny. Just the most ridiculous things like the rules of the school are hilarious. And the fact that they have to listen to him play the violin for six hours or they don't get like eating utensils for lunch and just they have to watch him eat a bag of candy. Like just the most detailed and obscure rules coming out of this man's mouth. I... I loved him. Like, he's one of those people that you hate to love, love to hate. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I feel like we throw around the word narcissist a lot in 2023. But I think he is probably a narcissist. Like, he's like a funny narcissist. But I feel like he checks those boxes. Oh, yeah. there. If you look up narcissist, there's a photo of Mr. Nero in the dictionary. (laughs) He's very textbook narcissist. Yes, I I think that uh, even the most conservative of psychologists, psychiatrists would support that diagnosis, that armchair diagnosis from us. But he's so funny because he like, he's very clear about the fact that he deigns to work at the school. Like they're lucky that he is there because he is a violin prodigy. And like you said, Noelle, he forces them to listen to him play the violin every night for six hours and acts as though it's like their privilege that they get to do that. And he just like the way that he talks to the kids, first of all, he is constantly negging them. Like he just mocks them constantly. He repeats everything they say and he doesn't understand how they would be unhappy about any of the things that he's suggesting or demanding of them. 
He even has Sonny, who is the baby of the Baudelaire family, work for him as his administrative assistant. Like, that's how dark this school is. And we shouldn't be surprised. Like, this is a series of unfortunate events. But they don't even put Sonny in some, like, creepy, fake preschool program. No, she's, like, working as a secretary for this bizarre vice principal. Yeah, his point of view is very much that he is like a gift to the world and his musical talents are just the cherry on top of that. One of my favorite quotes from the book is when they talk about something that their parents had said, which is there's nothing worse than someone who thinks they can play the violin and can, but insist on doing so. And I thought that was so funny. And it very much just depicts like the perfect image of Mr. Nero. And I just imagine him like walking around the school, baby Sonny just following after him, especially when he had her stapling the papers and then needing to make homemade staples, which genuinely as an adult, I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't even (laughs) know you could do make homemade staples. Poor Sunny. (laughs) Poor Sunny. I was so excited to jump into the story that I didn't even get a chance to ask you about your take on the Baudelaire's and on Violet, Klaus, and Sunny. Do you remember if there was one of the three of them that you like connected with the most or was there one this time around that you were the most drawn to? I think I've always been a fan of Violet. To be honest, I don't particularly remember a time in my life where I've made a single invention. Actually, I can't even build Ikea furniture, but yet somehow (laughs) in my mind, I'm like very similar to Violet. I'm going to put my hair up and get to work and think of an invention. And as a kid, I very much was sort of the like teacher's pet and really wanted to strive to do good things. And so I loved Violet because she really was such a small woman leader who would just tie her hair up in her ribbon and then get to work and have some invention that's getting the kids out of whatever mess that they had gone into. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand any of her inventions. I definitely don't understand the invention in this book that she puts together to make the aforementioned homemade staples. It involves creamed spinach in a way that like I can't wrap my head around. But I agree with you, even as somebody who has never invented anything in her whole life, I felt like a Violet when I was a kid. And I think it's because she's the big sister and has like such strong big sister energy. And I too am a big sister. So I think I just like related to her her sense of like wanting to protect her siblings and also just her innate need to like get shit done for lack of a better word. She's like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to be resourceful. I will tie my hair up in a ribbon. I'll put my head down and I will make it work. So I, I, uh, I would say that everything you said resonated with me too. Yeah. And she's so grounded, especially as a child. I mean, in this book, but in all the books, they're always in pretty high intense stress environments. And she's always the one that's very calm, very cool, collected, making sure that her siblings are sure that everything's going to be okay. And so I really feel like what you said, that big sister energy definitely comes through with that character. Yeah, I feel like if we were to get Violet's story in the future, once she and her siblings get rid of Count Olaf for good, she would be running an amazing company or just doing something very cool. Yes, yes. I would love to see like 30 years into the future. What is, what are, what's the whole gang up to? What's Count Olaf doing? What's Mr. Nero doing? Is he still playing violin? (laughs) I feel like Mr. Nero is doing the exact same thing as he is in this book. Like just pretending to care about being a vice principal and using it as a platform to play his violin for six hours every night. 
I agree. Except I imagine he has like a SoundCloud or Spotify <laughs> yeah. and he has maybe like five streams that are him on different accounts. And yeah, it, I think it would be really funny to, to imagine that. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's so much to work with there. I love the idea of him having a Spotify channel. And it's just like a picture of him like looking really creepy as the jacket art. I guess it's not jacket exactly. art. What's it called? Cover jacket art. art. Cover art. We're, we're talking in book language, but I guess that makes sense. <laughs> the picture on Spotify, everybody, would be a photo of Nero looking super creepy and nobody would listen except Nero himself. So after we meet Nero, the kids get a little bit of a tour. They find out that they're living in a disgusting shack that is populated by crabs, which is disgusting. But then we get introduced to what I, I have to say is like the true heart of the book, which is their friendship with the quagmire triplets. Aside, there are actually only two quagmire triplets because there was once a third quagmire triplet who passed away with their parents in a fire. But Isadora and Duncan become fast friends with the bottlers because they see what's happening with Carmelita Spatz in the cafeteria. And they stand up to Carmelita Spatz and they talk to the bottlers and they're like, this is just how she is. Don't worry about it. I did initially have a little bit of a suspicion that there was something weird going on with the Quagmires because it was so, they were so quick to be like, oh yes, we too have a fortune. We too are orphans. And so I thought that Count Olaf was maybe like pulling some strings there. And I was very glad to discover that no, they were actually just like really sweet kids that were meant to be friends with the Baudelaire's. What did you think? Was was I alone in that suspicion? Am I being a conspiracy <laughs> theorist? I think maybe at one point I was suspicious, <laughs> but I do think I... Re- I think I remember that they were friends or I don't, as I was reading it, I had so many flashbacks to being a kid and I do remember their friendship and now I love them. Like their friendship I think is so, so, so sweet. And the fact that they were triplets, I feel like that is so sad to me. I could not imagine. And that's definitely one of those things that as a kid, I'm sure went over my head, like the severeness of how sad that was. But I think they are such great friends to the orphans in this book and the part where they opted to do the running for them I thought was incredible because I myself am absolutely not a runner so I would never raise my hand to run in place of anybody and so the fact that they did that it was it was a really awesome moment. Yeah I I agree and it was just so lovely to see the Baudelaire's making friends and having a genuine connection with another group of people, let alone people their own age. And when I was reading reviews of book five of the Austere Academy, a lot of the reviewers and readers were talking about how while of course the book ends with like a stressful Count Olaf encounter, there is something about the Austere Academy that feels like it gives the kids a breather like of course this boarding school is terrifying and gross and disgusting but they do get a break in the action of like constantly running for their lives to the extent that they get to make friends and I pulled out a couple of quotes from the book that I drew a heart next to because I just was like so glad to see Klaus and Sunny and Violet able to take a deep breath It is a relief in hectic and frightening times to find true friends, and it was this relief that all five children were feeling as the Quagmires gave the Baudelaire's a tour of the Proofrock Library. Friends can make you feel that the world is smaller and less sneaky than it really is, because you know people who have similar experiences, a phrase which here means having lost family members in terrible fires and lived in the orphan shack. 
The three siblings thought that perhaps their troubles were coming to an end at last. They were wrong about this, of course, but for the moment, it didn't matter. The Baudelaire orphans had found friends, and they stood in the library with the Quagmire triplets, and the world felt smaller and safer than it had for a long, long time. Ah. Uh. My heart. My I want to get that printed. I know. It's so sweet. I I loved the contrast, too, of them earlier in the book being in the lunchroom and Carmelita making fun of them and them sort of, I just imagined them holding like a lunch tray and sort of looking for a place to sit and not having any friends. And then eventually, obviously meeting Duncan and his Dora and then having this tight knit orphan group. I loved it. It was such a sweet moment. Yeah, it made me want to like call all of my friends and just be like, I'm grateful for you for making the world feel less sneaky. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's so true. Having good friends really does make the world feel smaller. And so I thought even that line, I'm like, ooh, I'm, I'm taking that with me and putting it in my pocket for for a day. Yeah, they, they needed that. The Baudelaire's really needed that. And I will say I discovered that the Quagmires remain a part of the series after this book. So I guess they stick around and hopefully their friendship remains strong and uh, hopefully nothing happens to the Quagmires because it seems pretty dark for them at the end of the book. But after our initial introduction to the Quagmires, we learn that there is a new gym teacher arriving and his name is Coach Genghis. And I did want to call out that there was like some interesting kind of like religious cultural commentary going on here that I thought was notable given the time when it was published. The book came out in 2000 and there was a lot made of the fact that Coach Genghis is wearing a turban and every time the kids ask him to remove it, Principal Nero is like, no, like you can't for religious reasons. And it's almost clowned on a little bit, like they're kind of making fun of the fact that he may or may not be wearing a turban for religious reasons. And of course, the Baudelaire's know that to their knowledge, Count Olaf, who is, spoiler alert, actually Coach Genghis does not have any religious affiliations that would mean that he has to wear a turban at all times. I feel like especially in a post 9-11 world, when in 2001, all of a sudden, people in Western countries specifically were like gaining exposure to different kinds of cultural and religious norms. I don't know that that detail would have made it into the book. And I don't know that it would have been made into a joke. I I completely agree with you. Yeah, it was just like a lot of talk about the turban. And it just it I think that there's, of course, a place for like, earnest discussion about that kind of a ritual or that kind of a cultural or religious norm. But the fact that it was sort of made to be silly in the book felt off to me. So I wanted to make sure we called that out. But Coach Genghis shows up and Vice Principal Nero is like, just like I am the best violinist, this is the best gym teacher in the whole world. And he's fully team Coach Genghis. And this is all the more frustrating because one of the reasons Mr. Poe agreed to let the Baudelaire's go to this school is because Vice Principal Nero claims that they have some like advanced computer system which which felt very AI to me of like we will catch Count Olaf like we won't let anything happen to you kids while you're here and of course Count Olaf is like directly under his nose as Coach Genghis and the Baudelaire's can see that it's him but they don't trust that people will believe them so they decide to kind of like feel out the situation and it does not go well very quickly uh Coach Genghis is like nope I'm gonna try to catch these Baudelaire's again by making them run every night for hours yes the the sore which I thought was so funny the special orphan 
what was it? Special orphan running, running exercise. exercise. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, orphans are the best at running, which is so dark. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing was ridiculous. The way he paints a circle on the ground. And it's very, very Count Olaf behavior, though. It's what you've learned to expect. And if you've read the whole series or if you've read one through four, then in book five, you're like, this sounds like him. Yep, that sounds like his behavior. Par for the course, especially because he makes Sunny participate and Sunny can't even walk. So so <laughs> Violet and Klaus are running and Sunny is like crawling as fast as she can next to them on this track. Sunny is really the ultimate orphan when it comes to just going with the flow. Like she's out there making homemade staples and crawling and doesn't ask for much, even though she's the youngest. <laughs> yeah, she's a literal infant. And while she recognizes that she's not doing a very good job as a secretary, she also at no point is like, I will not be a secretary anymore. Like, she just does what she has to do to help her family. She's so sweet. We love her. We love Sunny, (laughs) even though she's a major biter, but often chooses her biting prowess for good. So they're doing these running exercises every night, and they think at first that it'll stop. Carmelita Spatz is responsible for for beckoning them to coach Genghis every night. And they're like, okay, maybe this will just be one night, two nights. But it ends up going on for nine nights that the three of them are running and running and running all night long. And it's like textbook major exhaustion burnout. Like the description of what happens to these kids after nine nights of this, I'm like, these kids should be checked into some sort of a hospital and given fluids and allowed to rest and that would even be if they were adults but they're so little and they're so tired and of course they can't function the way they're supposed to in an intense school environment. I know and I don't even think we mentioned that they don't have normal weekends so this is just in every single day at this school they don't believe in weekends because it doesn't align with their their motto at this school which is their motto is so strange about remember you will die yeah yeah remember you will die so these poor orphans just they can't catch a break yeah and they have these horrible teachers that are boring them to death anyway and so if it wasn't hard enough to stay awake just because they're tired then they're like taking these classes where all they're learning about is the metric system or their teachers like personal anecdotes and so they start to really experience a dip in their grades which is not something that the bottleheads are accustomed to they're very smart and once their grades start taking a turn, Vice Principal Nero beckons them to his office and explains that they are going to have to take a comprehensive test. And if they don't pass it, they will be expelled. And while Violet and Klaus are taking a comprehensive test, Sunny needs to figure out how to make homemade staples. It always comes back to the homemade staples. And if she can't figure out how to do that, then she will be fired And the solution to an expulsion or firing for these kids will be to go live and be under the care of Coach Genghis, who has so generously offered to be their keeper. And this is, of course, the worst case scenario for the Baudelaire. So they have to figure out how they're going to pass this comprehensive exam and how Sunny is going to somehow invent a way to make homemade staples. Of course, Count Olaf is always there to raise his hand to be the caretaker for the orphans. And even just thinking about the homemade staples to me is just ridiculous. And the invention that Violet ends up coming up with, I genuinely do not know how to even describe it. The cream spinach, the, all of the details are, are so funny. 
yeah, I skimmed that section and I didn't even bother to reread it because I was like, none of this makes sense. It's absurd and it's supposed to be and that's fine. Definitely. And I feel like for three orphans that are so smart and so capable, the fact that they are failing has got to be taking a toll on them because they are so well read, so capable, so smart. And the fact that their life depends on this comprehensive exam, I could only imagine the pressure. Yeah, as the perfectionist big sister, I especially feel empathy for Violet because not only is she feeling self-conscious about her own grades, but she probably feels responsible for the way her younger siblings are performing because she is now like in charge of the family. So I was really feeling for her there and she must just be so upset, but they're also like too tired to be upset. And this is where thankfully the quagmires come in and they are so brave. They of course at this point have heard the stories about Count Olaf and I wanted to share this quote about bravery that the author writes once the quagmires step in to help the Baudelaire's pass their test and invent staples. It says, it was very brave of the Quagmire triplets not to be frightened of Olaf and to be so confident about their plan. But the three siblings could not help but wonder if the Quagmires should be so brave. Olaf was such a wretched man that it seemed wise to be frightened of him. And he had defeated so many of the Baudelaire's plans that it seems a little foolish to be so confident about this one. And they like try to explain that to the Quagmires a couple of times. They're like, no, no guys, like, I don't know that you understand how serious this is. And the quagmires are just, they already have a plan. They already have it figured out. They know what they're going to do to ensure that the bottlers can stay and not be back in the clutches of Count Olaf. Yes, the friendship grows stronger as they volunteer to do the running exercises. And really, the children, I feel like in this book, are so relentless. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, wow, I would love my future children to obviously not be in these situations. Nobody wants that. But just the level of perseverance that they have, I think is really, really admirable. Mm. Yeah, I love that you said that. And I also think that there's like a self-assuredness to them where even when things feel really dark, the bottlers still maintain this belief that like they will figure something out. And yes, that's because they're resourceful and they're smart. But I also think that like, they just they're confident that especially together like they each have their own skills and gifts and now you add in Duncan and Isadora's gifts and talents and there's this element of teamwork that happens and they're just like self-assured that it's going to work out they'll figure it out and they will hopefully not have to deal with Count Olaf again and in this situation luckily the Quagmires have their notes from the last few days of classes ready for the older Baudelaire's to review and they have decided that, as you said, Noel, they are going to go to SOAR, the running activity, in place of the Baudelaire's the night before the exam so that Violet and Klaus have time to prepare. And they decide to sort of disguise themselves as Violet and Klaus, and they are going to pretend that they have Sunny by stealing a bag of flour and tying a string to it, which is like perhaps the most absurd detail of the book. I thought that was so funny, just imagining a little a little sack that's supposed to be sunny, just trailing not, not too far behind. And of course, Count Olaf being not the brightest, just doesn't even notice the difference. Yeah, of course not. And he's like, ah, oh, yes, these, uh, these three kids, this bag of flour, this is what a baby looks like. It's like classic childless man. Like, ah, oh, yes, this is how a baby moves. that is so true I didn't even think about that but the plan initially seems to work in that the bottlers are able to like band together for that night they cram enough to be able to pass their exams with flying colors 
And as much as Principal Nero wants them out, the teachers who are giving the exams are like, no, these kids know what they're doing. They have to stay. But unfortunately, the quagmires are not so lucky because just as Violet, Klaus, and Sunny are getting the good news about the decision for them to stay at school, Coach Genghis, a.k.a. Count Olaf, shows up and is like, I know that these are not the Baudelaire's uh, who were with me last night. And... Now we commence this whole scene that is just so frustrating to me as an adult. I can't even imagine how frustrating it is for kid readers. And it's not the first one we see in this book, but it's sort of like the prime example where the kids are just like trying to be believed and trying to like lay out a very rational, factual, reasonable argument to Vice Principal Nero about Count Olaf. And like they have a lot of excellent points and nobody is listening to them. And obviously this is like a very extreme example of what it's like to be a kid and have nobody listen to you. But I do think so many kids can relate to this to an extent because when you're little, it often feels like nobody's listening to you and like nobody takes you seriously or that your opinions don't count. And it is so satisfying when you're a kid, like once you've gone head to head or toe to toe with an adult and they realize that like they were wrong and you were right. But I don't know. I just think Lemony Snicket, a.k.a. Daniel Handler, does such an excellent job of putting that frustration on the page. And, of course, that the stakes are very high here. But that's something that is relatable for everyone. I completely agree. And I feel like this is a prime example of what we were talking about earlier, of just adults letting you down. And I think being able to read this story and kind of, like, resonate with some of it, I feel you know, I can remember times when I was a kid where I would, even having an older brother, I would, you know, be going toe-to-toe with him or be going toe-to-toe with my parents about something and just feeling like, ugh, nobody believes me. I'm the youngest one in this house. Like, my vote is the smallest. And so I feel like everybody can can read this story and recall a time that something similar has happened to them. Yeah, or even as an adult, like in the working world, when you when there's like a mix up with somebody you're working with and you're like, no, I have an email to prove that I'm right. Like that, that visceral reaction of like, I can prove it. Just like, let me try. That's kind of what's going on with the Baudelaire's. Again, they like try to get him to take off the turban because Count Olaf has a unibrow. And so they want to prove that that's him. Because apparently Count Olaf is the only person in this universe with a unibrow. And they claim that if he takes off his shoes, they can prove that he is Count Olaf because Count Olaf has a very distinctive eye tattoo. And ultimately, Mr. Poe shows up to like pay Carmelita Spatz's fee for being Coach Genghis's messenger. And so he like kind of helps the situation along. But once Coach Genghis is revealed to be Count Olaf, he just takes off anyway, and they're sort of back to square one. And poor Duncan and Isadora are the ones who suffer the most because they are kidnapped in the process. I know. That part is so sad because they were easily the most helpful of everybody to the orphans. And then, of course, they got the short end of the stick on the last few chapters. Yes, they are seen in the final moments of the book, like in the backseat of a car, just kind of with no agency. We don't know where they're going. Duncan has shouted out a final clue to Klaus. He thinks that the initials VFD, which he discovered while he was doing research about Count Olaf, might help them. But as far as we know, at the end of book five, VFD means nothing. And I guess we have to read to book six to know what that means. 
I really enjoyed this book. I will be honest, when I reread The Bad Beginning a few years ago for the podcast, I was not as impressed as I wanted to be and I felt a little let down, especially because the books like loomed so large in my memory and I enjoyed them so much as a kid. But this one didn't disappoint. I really liked it a lot. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I I loved the book as well. I feel like also thinking of all of the books in this series, I feel like this was the most the book where the children got to be children the most. Like it was the first environment where they were surrounded by other kids. They were sort of in environments, even though it was such a strange boarding school. It was the first time that they almost got to feel quote unquote normal. Yeah, and as readers, we got to see them in different situations and in a different light, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot written about the like moral ambiguity of these books and how even like the good characters are sort of villainous and there's so much gray area in terms of right and wrong. I'm wondering if you have any other thoughts, like anything that we haven't covered to that point about this book and like how that kind of moral ambiguity plays out in the Austere Academy. I didn't find it as ambiguous as the first book. I felt like because all the adults were so bad and the Quagmires were so lovely that it was a little clearer. But I'm told on good authority that as the books go on, like even the kids become a little bit more gray as far as their morality. So I just was curious if you had any other thoughts before we start to wrap up our conversation about the book. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I do remember some of the other books, it being a little bit fuzzier, but I feel like this book in particular, the characters were sitting at such extremes. Like Carmelie the Spats was definitely just annoying. And that was pretty much what she was. And Isabella and Duncan were nothing but lovely and helpful. So I feel like this book in particular might be uh, outside of that ambiguity. Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you enjoyed reading it. Is there any part of it that let you down or do you feel like it 100% lived up to your memory of it? To be honest, I feel like it lived up to my memory and even more. I oh, thought, I, I know for a fact, just putting myself at the age that I was when I first started to read these, I know so much probably went over my head while I was reading it the first time around, of course, being a child. And so now I feel like getting to see it with fresh eyes and getting to really clearly see the lessons that are being laid out in the book, I really appreciated it. Yeah, it's also cool as an adult to see all of the smart little additions that the author made, like in terms of the language and the asides and like all of the just theatrical touches that made it different from other books. It feels really interactive, which is different than most of the stories that I read when I was a kid. So I'm glad we read this one. Thank you again for suggesting it. Other than The Austere Academy, is there anything that you have been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? Yeah, this is not a children's book, but I recently read Ghosts by Dolly Alderton. I saw it on your shelf behind you, and I'll admit I got really (laughs) excited because I love that book. I was hoping you would mention it. (laughs) Yes, yes. I thought it was so good, so clever. As somebody who has navigated the dating scene in New York City, I felt very much like I could have related to the character in it, and It was easily one of my favorite books I've read recently. It also has a great cover. I love the like photographic. It's so impactful. It's really cool. Yes. And the author, I have a little fangirl crush on her. I think she's so cool. I follow her on Instagram. She does such incredible pieces of advice every Sunday that I love to read. So yeah, she's, she's awesome. 
oh, maybe I will have to start following her and also develop an author crush. I love that book so much. So I will second Noelle's recommendation. And while we are talking about books not meant for kids, about books for adults, I want to congratulate you, Noelle, because as this episode drops, we are a week away from the release of your book, Under the Influence. And this book has been on my personal TBR since like I very first heard of it, since probably like before I had any thought that maybe you would come on the podcast. I saw a little shout out, like a little preview to it years ago that you were writing a book um, and knowing what your experience has been like, I was like, I have to read this. So I cannot wait. I have an early copy uh, upstairs in my house right now and I can't wait to get into it. So I would love to turn the mic over to you and have you tell us more about it because I haven't even read it yet and I can't stop fangirling. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited for you to read it and I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Under the Influence follows a young woman named Harper and she sort of down on her luck. She lives in New York City. She's not with the right guy. She's not in the, the job that she's hoping for and she's just really looking for something to to help her build a life that she's always dreamt of. And so when she applies for this job, after her roommate kind of encourages her to, she sees this job listing for an influencer that she doesn't know anything about. And the job description is really ambiguous, but she decides, you know, what the heck, let me just apply to it. And soon enough, she gets the job and it's very much a whirlwind and she gets placed into this environment sort of similar to the Austere Academy. She gets placed into this environment that she's not used to. And it's this influencer world and she's working for self-help influencer Charlotte Green who is charismatic and very much you got this girl energy and she feels like this is my dream position this is so exciting but as she starts to be there longer and starts to learn more sort of what's behind the curtain um, it's it's unveiled that maybe this job is not quite what it seems and maybe being a girl boss or a self-help influencer is not exactly what society might pan it out to be. Well, I, as I said, couldn't be more excited. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what inspired the book. Yeah, so the stories in the book are all inspired by friends, experiences, friends of friends, colleagues, my own, things I read about online, uh, stories I heard during happy hours. I feel like, you know, unfortunately, we live in this world where I don't know that many people that can say they haven't had a bad boss or a bad working environment before. And so being able to use that as inspiration and put something really fun on the page was was really exciting for me. Well, I am glad that you were able to use that inspiration as fuel for the book. Congratulations, listeners. Again, the book is called Under the Influence. Noelle, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing about it with us. And I can't wait to see what happens next with it. Thank you so much. And thank you again for having me on here. Absolutely. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. 
If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.